Well, we are at question 31 in the Shorter Catechism. And this question is on effectual calling. And our scripture reading in a few minutes will be Ezekiel chapter 36. So this is the third question that has to do with how our redemption is applied to us. In other words, Jesus did the redemption. How does he deliver it to us? How does it, how does it get to our doorstep? You can manufacture um, something. Maybe you uh, manufacture a camera or something, and then you, uh, you go on and you buy it from Amazon, and it has to get to you, or it doesn't do you any good. And Jesus did our redemption. He did all that was required. But if it's just out there and we never are connected, it won't benefit us. You remember we saw the work of redemption that he has done looking at uh, questions 23 through 28. And one of the things that was noted there was the work that he did as a prophet revealing to us the way of salvation as a, king, as a priest uh, making atonement for our sins and making intercession for us before the Father for the forgiveness of our sins. And then as a king that he is the one who destroys his and our enemies and also the one who brings us into submission to his ways. So that was questions 23 through 28. And now we're in these three questions, 29 through 31, that have to do with how that work of redemption is applied to us. So let's review these questions by confessing them together. Question 29, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. When we studied this, we saw from Titus 3.5 that it was not by works of righteousness which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. That means that we did not initiate coming to the Lord to be saved. He came to us and washed us because our corruption, our rebellion is what was keeping us from him. And by washing away Some of that rebellion, it's not all gone, but he washed away the rebellion that was so strong that even kept us from coming to him for salvation. And so he renewed us so that we would come to him. Now, last week we looked at question 30 that asked, how does he apply that redemption? Question 30, how doth the spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The Spirit applieth to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. So you see here that he unites us to Christ by the instrument of faith. We saw that to be redeemed, we have to be united to Christ. We can't be aloof or apart from him. We saw that those who are without Christ are without God in the world and they are without hope in the world. 
We are united to him legally, we saw, in a covenant relationship so that his work is credited to us legally for acceptance and forgiveness. The work that he did is applied to our account. And then we are united to him, we saw, vitally, so that he makes us alive who were spiritually dead. We have to have both of those, and they occur together. They're part of the promise of the covenant. The instrument, again, or the cord that joins us to Christ for this covenant blessing and this life-giving, this vital lesson or, or, or connection is uh, faith that worked into us by the Holy Spirit. We saw in Ephesians 2 that we're saved by grace through faith, and that faith is not of ourselves, but that it is the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that brings us to our question for this week. Again, last week we saw that the Holy Spirit works faith in us in our effectual calling. This week, we want to see what effectual calling is. What does it entail? This effectual calling that produces faith in us. What, what does it involve? So question 31. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's Spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Our scripture reading related to this is, again, Ezekiel 36, and I'll begin with verse 16. So please give your attention as I read this portion of God's holy scripture to you, and remember that it is the holy and infallible word of God. Ezekiel 36 and verse 16. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury on them for the blood of they, they had shed on the land and for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations and they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. <clears throat> when they said of them, these are the people of the Lord, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nations shall know that I am the Lord, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in, your, in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. 
Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments to do them. Then you, then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain and multiply it and bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees and the increase of your fields so that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Lord God, let it be known to you, be ashamed and confounded for your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities, I will also enable you to dwell in the cities, and the ruins shall be rebuilt. The desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden, and the wasted, desolate, and ruined cities are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock, like a flock offered as, a holy, as holy sacrifices, Like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days, so shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to his holy and infallible word. Let's begin with a basic overview of what effectual calling is and how it is revealed in Ezekiel 36 to us. Because you see, this talks about God's people being scattered and then him calling them together again as his people. So I want you to think about these words themselves, effectual calling. Essentially, an effectual call is a call that is effectual. It's a call that is obeyed. You know, children, suppose that you're, you're playing outside and you're having a really, a really good old time and then you hear your mother open the door and she calls you in. And the question is, you've been called, but will the call be effectual? If, what if you are just in the middle of something and it will only take you a few more minutes and so then you don't come? That means that your mom's call was not effectual, at least not immediately so, not until you come. But once you finally go in, then the call worked. It was effectual. The same thing is true when there's a king and someone comes against his city and he 
has a call to arms. He tells all the men to take up their weapons and go and fight. Suppose you have uh, this city, and then he, he, ha- he issues this call and calls all the men to take their strategic positions and to take their weapons, but some of the men don't come. Well, the men that come are the ones who are effectually called. And if no one came, then he would have a call, but it would not be effectual at all. In the same way, the call to salvation is effectual only when it is obeyed. Many people are called to repent and believe the gospel. We're supposed to command all people everywhere to repent and believe. They're called to turn from their sin and to come to Jesus for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. Where we are told that, and we're told that whoever believes in him will be saved. That person will have their sins completely forgiven and they will be given new life, like uh, eternal life, like we saw that the vital union, they'll get, they'll get, be made alive. But you know that although many people are called, there are only some people who actually come. Jesus illustrated this with the parable of the marriage feast. Do you remember that parable to which many people were invited, but they all began to make excuses about why they couldn't come? And only a few came. And Jesus said in reaction to this, many are called, but few are chosen. So he was distinguishing between the outward call and the effectual call with the word chosen. The ones that are chosen are the ones that are effectually called. But there is something interesting about what Jesus says there. He does not say many are called, but few choose to come. He says many are called, but few are chosen. That puts the emphasis on something that we have already seen about people who are in need of redemption and about people who received redemption, that it's the work of God. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. God says, I will gather you. God is the one who takes the initiative and who actually unites us to Christ when we, as we saw last time in Ephesians 2, were dead in our trespasses and sins and would not come, no matter how much we were called. The call itself only makes us alive if it is an effectual call. Now, Ezekiel 36 shows you that it is God who does this gathering to salvation of his people. It is he who not only calls, but who effectually calls those who are saved. Just look at the passage in a general way, and you can see that this is so. Ezekiel 36. First, understand the overall context. Centuries before Ezekiel, God had graciously gathered Israel out of Egypt that they might be saved, that they might be his people. They were brought into the land. This was a precursor to them being brought to Jesus Christ. Do you understand what I mean by that? It was a precursor. See, in the land, God had a temple built where he appointed priests to offer sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins. And God declared to them that they were acceptable to him through the blood of the covenant that was shed 
ritually, they were made acceptable. This all pointed, these rituals pointed to the true sacrifice that Christ was going to make. But before he came, being gathered into the land was like being gathered to Christ in his church, like that is for us. We are gathered to Christ in his church in order that we might be saved by him. They were gathered into the land, into the temple and and the ordinances that God had for them there. And because there were many in Israel who were not really or truly reconciled to God as their own God, though they were in the land, okay, they were physically present there, but they weren't really reconciled, they did not live as God's people. They did not live as his people because they were not actually his people. They were not really saved. As God said to them sometimes that you are circumcised in your flesh, but not in your heart. So eventually things became so bad. That's what Ezekiel is talking about. That God says that he drove them out of the land. Why should they be in the land if they weren't his people? They were, they were his people in one way, but you see, they didn't have genuine, uh, they, they were not chosen. They were not chosen unto salvation. Now, this is what it's talking about in Ezekiel 36, 17 through 20. In verse 17, the Lord says that they were like an unclean woman to him. They weren't, they weren't living as his people. And in verse 17, he says that he poured out his fury on them, both for shedding blood, they were murdering people, murdering each other, hating each other, and for their idolatry. That is, they were pretending that they could make God to be whatever they wanted him to be, which is whatever laws they wanted God to have. They would shape God according to their own desires. That's what idolatry does. And God would not have that because he's the true and living God. He's not a God that we make up. Because God was so furious with them, verse 19 and 20 tell us that he scattered them among the nation. You see that? That was their penalty. So what happens, what do we see happening in churches today? People are being scattered out of the church so that they're no longer able to receive the gospel. This is what we call in the Old Testament, the exile or the captivity, the time when Israel was driven out of the land and they were scattered, as it were, from Christ, from the place where God's acceptance was revealed through those ceremonies. But what is the overall thrust of the passage that we read in Ezekiel 36? Well, it is God's promise to his people that though he scattered them because of all their wickedness, he is going to gather them again. He's going to regather them. He's going to bring them back into the land again because they are his people. You can see where this is declared in verse 24. For I will take you from among the nations, all the places where he scattered them, gather you out of all countries and bring you into your own land. Back to the place, back to the temple where he shows them that he is reconciled to them, that he is their God and that they are his people. He will forgive them and he will restore them. And you can see in verse 25 through 27 how he tells them not that not only is he going to bring them into the land, but that he's going to baptize them. This is why when John the Baptist came along, 
it was not a thing that was unknown. They knew what baptism was. He says he's going to baptism, baptize them to sprinkle clean water on them to cleanse them from their defilement. So, of course, the uh, ceremonial washing is representative of the washing of the Holy Spirit. It's not just in a ritual way. And that is emphasized in Ezekiel that, that yes, there's a ceremonial washing that stands for it, but there is the internal washing that goes on a real transformation of our lives. Look at what it says in verse 25. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. So that's an inward cleansing. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The heart of stone is one that doesn't listen to God, doesn't respond to God. It's a hard heart. And the flesh heart that replaces it, it's not flesh in the bad way that we talk about being in the flesh. This is flesh in a good way where it's a responsive, a warm, responsive heart. Verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Now we'll look at these verses in a little more detail in a few minutes. But for now, I want you to see that God is promising that he will effectually call his people. He is going to gather them in such a way that they actually genuinely come back to him. Not just a physical return to the land, but that they come to him in heart to be his people. And you can see clearly that it is indeed his work, his initiative. He is the one who effectually calls them, or to use the language of Ezekiel, he is the one who gathers them to himself, both outwardly and in heart, so that he is their God and they are his people. And again, gathering them to the land where the temple is with its promises of reconciliation to God and with its blood sacrifice is symbolic of gathering them to Jesus who was crucified. It is the Lord who effectually calls us to Christ for salvation that we might be reconciled to him and that we might be his people. We were in bondage right, in those other lands. But he releases us in order that we might serve him, that we might come to him now. We were dead in our sins, but he raises us from death to spiritual life so that we might serve him. We were blind, but he opens our eyes so that we might see. We were corrupt, but he baptizes us with his spirit so as to cleanse us. We were far from Christ. We were cut off from the land, but he brings us back. Now, let's look at more detail at how the Lord effectually calls us. Last week and the week before, we saw that it was work of the Holy Spirit. So we won't dwell on that particularly this week. And we have also seen in previous weeks that it is the work of gathering or uniting us to Christ with true faith. Again, Ephesians 2. In question 21, though, the catechism refers to this faith that joins us to Christ as the Spirit persuading and enabling us to embrace Jesus Christ 
as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. You could say that it's his, the Spirit gets us to believe. Okay? He somehow works in us. He gets us to come to him for salvation. Effectual calling is the Spirit working faith in us so that we trust in Christ. There are three things that the Spirit does to effectually call us to cause us to come to Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. These are mentioned in question 31. Let's look at them now. First, it says that he convinces us of our sin and misery. One of the main things that keeps people from answering God's call to come to Christ is their spiritual blindness to their own condition, to their need of salvation. If you think you're perfectly healthy, you don't go to the physician. Our Psalter captures the sense of the Hebrew quite well in Psalm 36, 1 through 2, when it says, transgression to the wicked speaks, deep in the heart it lies. There surely is no fear of God at all before his eyes. Because himself he flatters so, he, he, he flatters so in his own blinded eyes that he in his iniquity sees nothing to despise. He says, there's nothing wrong with me. You ever, talk, you ever witness to people and they say, are you saved from what? What do I need to be saved from? The sinner does not see how wicked he is before God. Even these Jews that were plotting to kill Christ, we saw all the wickedness that was involved in that. And they, they, if you would talk to them, they would say, oh no, we're, doing, we're, we're upholding God's ways and we're doing, we're doing good here. Uh, we're oblivious to the danger that they're in of judgment. Like an idiot that convinces himself that a lion won't care if he goes and pokes him in the nose with an ice pick. You know, like, oh yeah, I'm going to go poke that, poke that lion in the nose with an ice pick. He won't care. <laughs> Here he is, almighty God, who expelled us from the garden for rejecting him and who expelled his people, his own people, from the promised land for their malice, their hatred, and their idolatry, as we saw. And the God who has declared that all men are sinners and that he himself is a consuming fire that envelops sinners in his wrath. And yet mankind continually convinces himself there's nothing to worry about. There's not very much wrong with me. Not much in me that would displease God. He'd be pretty happy with me, I think, if, you know, I'd probably get on okay if I was to be judged today. Sometimes a sinner even convinces himself that there's no God at all. Doesn't have to answer to anyone. There is no God, he says in his heart. Now, why would such a fellow ever come to Jesus Christ for salvation? He doesn't need any salvation in his mind. What does he need to be saved from? He's, he's just fine the way he is. In the treasury of David, Spurgeon says of this fellow, he counts himself a fine fellow, worthy of great respect. He quiets his conscience and so deceives his own judgment as to reckon himself a pattern of excellence, if not for morality, yet for having sense enough not to be enslaved by rules which are bonds to others. He is the free thinker, the man of strong mind, the hater of Kant, the philosopher, and the servants of God are, in his esteem, mean-spirited and narrow-minded. Of all flatteries, this is the most absurd and dangerous. Even the silliest bird 
will not set traps for itself. The most pedophaging attorney will not cheat himself. To smooth over one's own conduct to one's own one's conscience, which is the meaning of the Hebrew, is to smooth one's own path to hell. The descent to eternal ruin is easy enough without making a glissade of it as self-flatterers do. So they make an easy pathway into hell by denying their sin. He has no need to bother with any seeking of salvation, or at least not for any salvation that he can't take care of quite well himself. What need does such a fine fellow have? This is the way of the natural man. This is the way of most people you meet. They haven't been effectually called. They don't see any, any real problem. The root is with their corrupt heart, but the Holy Spirit changes that. Ezekiel 36 tells us how the Lord fixes our heart. Look at verse 26 again. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. You see there's a promise of a new heart that results in walking according to God's judgments, according to God's statutes. In order to walk in them, you have to understand them. We see what God requires, and we see the dreadful punishment that God requires when he does this work. The new heart that the Holy Spirit gives you enables you to see your sin and to see its punishments. Our self-evaluation then changes from, now what was it in Ezekiel 36? It was self-flattery. Nothing wrong with me, I'm a good guy. It changes from that to... um, to, to conviction of sin, to a loathing of ourselves. Look at verse 31. It describes the outcome of the Spirit's work in those whose hearts he renews. Ezekiel 36, 31. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Now, isn't that true? I know... When I look back at some of the sins of my youth, they're much more vivid and colorful to me now. They're much more um, heinous. I didn't see the depth of those sins as I should have. Once we get to, um, to the stage where we loathe ourselves and remember our abominations, then we see clearly how much we need a Savior. See, that lays the foundation for you to come. You can't come if, if you're blind to your sin. You would never have any reason to come. So we see that we're in a desperate condition that's beyond all human remedy. We're done with all the man-made solutions. Don't need to see the, the psychologist or I don't need to take pills or I don't need to go and get some kind of self-help program or something. I'm done with all these man-made solutions, denials, and self-justifications. See that God is the one who can help us, only God. Now, on a side note, I would like to point out that effectual calling does not happen all at once. The catechism calls it the work of the Holy Spirit. So the catechism distinguishes for us between works and acts. A work 
is something that is done over time, a process like teaching someone the piano. You don't just do it in five minutes. It has to be, you have to work over time. An act is something that is done all at once, like playing a song on the piano. You do it as an act, it's done. It's not a work. It goes over time. Effectual calling is a work that leads to an act. Okay? The work is convincing us of our sin and misery, what we just saw, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, what we're going to see in a minute, and renewing our wills. So the act that results from that work of these ongoing things of convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ, and renewing our wills, the act that results is our coming to Christ, to embrace Jesus Christ as he is freely offered to us in the gospel. So the work of effectual calling can take many years, or it can be done rather quickly. It's up to God. Many of you who embraced Christ when you were older can testify that over the course of the years, the Holy Spirit convinced you of your sin and misery. All along the way, God was showing you that. You began to see more and more that you were a sinner who needed to be saved. A few of you may have had that happen quite rapidly. You had, a very, you had very little sense of your need, and then rather suddenly, you fell under deep conviction. It's different for different people. But whether it is a faster work or a slower work, it was the Holy Spirit who did the convincing of you, who convinced you of your sin and misery. That's the first work that he does in effectual calling. The second work that the Spirit does is to get us to come, I mean, get, get us to see who Christ is, enlightening our minds <clears throat> in the knowledge of Christ. It's one thing that you, it's one thing to see that you need God to save you from your sin. It's quite another to see that Christ is the only Savior. Okay, so seeing that I need to be saved, that's not salvation. You also have to see that Christ is the Savior. That as the scripture says in Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Not only is Jesus the only one that God appointed to be Savior for our salvation, God's elect Savior, He is also the only one who is qualified to save us. Now, we looked at that quite a bit when we were studying about Him as our Redeemer, as prophet, priest, and king, and the two natures that He has and all that. Paul says that the Lord spoke to him about this work of the Spirit when he told him that he was sending him as a missionary to open the eyes of the Gentiles. We see that Paul preached, and then the Spirit opened the eyes of some who heard so that they believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. For example, we're told that when Paul preached to Lydia at Philippi, that the Lord opened her heart to believe. It was the work of the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit show us about Christ to convince us that he is able to save us. Well, he shows us that he is the living word sent from God, sent from heaven by God. The one who not only preaches the truth to us, but the one who perfectly lived the truth. Both the law and the gospel are brought to living expression in him. He himself shows us what it means to serve God, and he himself is God's gospel of salvation seen in human flesh. In other words, the acts 
that he carried out for our redemption or put before us God's way of salvation. Besides that, the Spirit shows us that Christ alone has the offering that can take away our sins. That's how the Spirit convinces you. If you think there's another offering, you won't come to Christ. He is the Lamb without spot and blemish, the one who is totally dedicated to God. And He alone is the one who can atone for our sins by the shedding of His blood. No other sacrifice could meet what God requires because no other sacrifice is God the Son in human flesh. Nothing less could redeem anyone from their sin. Also, the Holy Spirit shows us that Christ is the only one who can conquer our enemies and who can conquer us. I think the second is the harder job. He is the one who came to destroy the work of the devil, and only he can do this. But he also came to put us to death, to our sin, so that we could respond to the gospel. Third thing, the Holy Spirit in our effectual calling. The third thing that the Spirit does is renew our wills. Romans 8 explains that apart from the working of the Holy Spirit, we are at our core enemies of God who cannot submit to his law. Romans 8, 7 says, The carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. The carnal mind is the mind that is devoid of the gracious working of the Holy Spirit. And you see, it cannot submit to God, it says. It, it's, it is just not in fallen man to ever submit to God. We will not submit to the gospel. We will not come to Christ. We will not repent. We don't even want to be reconciled to God because we do not want to do God's will. It goes against all that we have by our fall. The last thing we want to do is go live in his house where we would do his will. It's true that the call of God is there. And it's true that whosoever will may come. Revelation twenty-two seventeen, And the spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. And let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him come. Take of the water of life freely. Whoever desires to come may come. Whoever will may come. But until the Spirit works in us and changes us, we don't will to come. We don't desire to do so. It's only when He has changed us that we do. Romans 8 then goes on to emphasize the impossibility of a person submitting to God unless that person has the Holy Spirit's work, the Spirit working in him. After saying, the carnal mind is enmity against God, it's at war with God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. You don't go and subject yourself to your your enemy, unless he conquers you. Then it says, Romans 8, 8 through 9, so then those who are in the flesh, in this case meaning without God's spirit, cannot please God. He says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. And then it explains that if the Holy Spirit is in us, we can put to death the deeds of the flesh and live for God. That's what Romans 8 talks about. We are given 
a new will and a new ability. Now take a look at the promise in Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27. Again, look at the whole flow of these verses. They show, they show that you're given a new heart, which gives you new desires to please God. And those new desires lead you to a new life, a new walk of obedience to God. Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. This is a marvelous thing. By the mighty working of God's spirit, we go from a life that is hostile to God to a life that has his law is something that we delight in, that we delight to do the will of God, a life now lived to please him. God's spirit actually changes our will. So you see that effectual calling is a complete transformation of our whole life. Let's go over the things again. Okay, we see our our sin and the condemnation that it brings to us. We face the fact of our sin. We see how Christ is the perfect Savior, the only one who can deliver us. And we're given a new will, a desire to be saved, to be forgiven to be reconciled to God so that we can live for Him. This is how God's Spirit changes us so that we will answer the call to come and be saved. And then we do come. And that's the last thing that I want to say, that we must not forget that the final outcome of effectual calling is that we actually come to Jesus Christ. Call is an effectual if you don't come to Christ. It doesn't matter if you see the need and you see the provision that's there for forgiveness and you even have a a desire to go, but you don't ever go to Christ. Just as the Catechism says, we come to Him and we must embrace Him for salvation as He is freely offered in the Gospel. We answer the call that we never would or could have answered if God's Spirit had not transformed us by the renewing of our heart and mind. Be sure that you're clear about this because the effectual call is not complete until we come to Christ. Hear people sometimes talk about being convicted of sin as if that was the final. It's not. That's only preliminary. You must turn from your sins and from your own way and trust in Him and the work that He has done as redeemer for your salvation. That's what happens in those who are effectually called. If the call to come to Christ is not answered, then you may have experienced even this working of the Spirit in those things that we saw happen. But you have not been effectually called and you will perish in hell because you have not come to Christ. See, the Spirit can do some of these preliminary works. If you look in, um, in Peter it talks about that in Second um, Peter. It talks about different things that God can do so that you even escape the pollutions of the world through lust. You have a different will to turn from some of those gross and vile sins that you're committing, but you never come to Christ. Then there's no salvation there. John makes this very clear in John 3.18 when he says, He who believes in Him 
is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So the great question for you is not simply do you know that you are a sinner and that Christ is the only way and that it is a desirable thing to be saved and maybe you desire it in a certain way. The question is, have you come to Christ to be saved? The offer is freely given. To quote Revelation twenty-two seventeen again, the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears come and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires let him take of the water of life freely. It would be a dreadful thing for you to have a sense of your need of Christ and a sense of his sufficiency and a desire to be saved and reconciled to God, to be so close and yet never to actually put yourself in the hands of Christ to be saved from your sins. Romans 10, 8 through 11 says, the word is near you, okay? If you're, if you're part of the church and whatnot, the word is near you. In your mouth, in your heart, that is the word of faith which we preach. The gospel is preached near you. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Always remember, even when you're witnessing to other people too, not enough for them to be convicted of sin, to see the need of Christ, and even to have a desire to come. They need to actually come. They need to come, and when they confess with their mouth, they confess before God's people, make a confession of faith, become uh, baptized, and and enter into the church, and then they... um, and in their heart, they believe these things. They, they, they receive Christ as one trusting in him. Please stand and let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you for the effectual call that is the way that faith, saving faith, is brought to us. We don't just have saving faith. We can't just conjure it up out of nowhere. But it comes as a result of are being convinced that we are sinners by your Holy Spirit and of our being enlightened in the, in the knowledge of Christ and Him as our Savior, as the way of salvation. We see that there's no other way for anyone to be saved. And it comes as a result of, as a result of the renewing of our wills so that instead of being stubborn and opposing you, we're able to come to you to be saved and and then it is affected by us truly receiving and resting upon Christ alone for our salvation. Lord, help us as we witness to other people not to just leave them kind of in a halfway place without warning them and without telling them about it. We know that people sometimes like to kind of make a private confession and say, "Oh, I believe Jesus in my heart" or whatever. But truly, they need to confess with their mouth. And they also need to believe in their heart. And then there are those, Lord, that do confess with their mouth, but their heart is yet far away and they don't really believe what they're saying. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from all of these errors and that we would have a a living and fruitful faith that brings forth new life.
For that's what Jesus said that it would do. That we would become, that we would walk in your way. That we would know you and that we'd walk in your way. So Lord, our eyes are upon you. We're asking you, O Lord, to to forgive us and to have mercy on us and help us to live for you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, our song of response is 51E. May the Lord your God be with you as he was with your fathers. May he not leave you nor forsake you, that he may incline your hearts to himself to walk in all his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, which he commanded your fathers. Amen.